We'll read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, 1 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made by Serenius when, when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem. And see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the same which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. May God bless the reading of his word. Dear church family, the ancient church father, Chrysostom, rightly said that the feast 
we commemorate that the birth of Christ is the root of all genuine feast days. For it's not only the door to Gethsemane and to Gabbatha and Golgotha, but also to the empty tomb, to Mount Olivet, to the right hand of the Father, and to everlasting bliss. Jesus was born to die, to live, to be everlasting Savior. This is the beauty of this day that we commemorate arbitrarily. We don't know the day that Jesus was born. But it's a worthy practice one morning a year to gather in God's house and hear about this beautiful, glorious wonder. This feast day, which inevitably leads to all the others, so that we find full-orbed salvation in this wonderful Savior. So on behalf of the consistory and the ministers and our, our, our wives and families, we want to wish you a, a blessed, Christ-centered day of commemorating the birth of Jesus Christ. And as you do so, may that Savior fill your hearts, fill your minds, and fill this day with himself. With the very text I want to bring to you, I want to focus just on two verses this morning, 10 and 11 of Luke 2. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So our theme this morning is the most astonishing birth ever. The most astonishing birth ever. And we'll look at three thoughts. The remarkable uniqueness of Christ's birth. The wonderful reasons for Christ's birth. And the joyful effect of Christ's birth. So first then, the, the uniqueness. Just three things that are unique I want to set before you. And then go a bit deeper. The first is this. It's quietness. It's quietness. What a private, quiet event. The birth of Jesus was. No family was around Joseph and Mary in that manger when Jesus was born. Here it is, the most important event in all the world. You know, I often quote to you what Rutherford said, the second greatest miracle of Christ is my salvation. The first is his incarnation. Nothing greater ever happened than this. It's a stupendous event. 
But there's no noise when Jesus' birth happened. It's quiet. And if you contrast that for a moment with when the law was given, there was an earthquake, there was noise, there was commotion, there was the blowing of a trumpet from heaven, the sounding of God's voice, the mountain shook, it was on fire, a spectacular event. But the birth of Jesus, there was no fanfare, it was silent, it was private, no earthquake. We must never measure God by noise. You must never measure events that transpire in the world by the fuss and the clamor and the noise that man makes about them. God can visit us in the still small voice or what seems like a very small event if he is in it. If the born babe of Bethlehem is in it, it's a big event. Secondly, his birth is unique in its difficulty. It's difficulty. Mary experienced so much inconvenience, difficulty in bringing Christ into the world. She was the handmaid of the Lord. An angel had come and told her she would give birth to this wonderful child whom she and Joseph were to call Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins, as we heard yesterday. She would rightly be favored among women because she was sovereignly chosen to give birth to the Messiah, something that every true believing woman in Israel no doubt had a secret hope they would have that privilege. How wonderfully, how unconditionally, how obediently Mary submits to that angelic message. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto thee according to thy word. It all seemed so good, so, well, too good to be true maybe. And we would think then that since Mary received this message so well, that the end result would be that everything would go smoothly. But the opposite is the case. There's no room. No room for them. No room for a pregnant woman. No room for Mary in the end. Her birth pangs come at a very inconvenient time. Away from home. There's no nice hospital to take care of her. She has to give birth to Jesus in the midst of animals, in a stable. Ought not that to teach us that we must never judge about whether or not we are in God's way by the measure of our own comfort? We're all prone to do this. We're prone to say, or to think at least, If we're walking in God's favor, everything will go smoothly. But that's often not the case. 
Mary was absolutely here in the will of God, obediently, submissively. And yet, this was not an easy birth. Things didn't go smoothly. If she had responded the way that many modern, superficial Christians do, she would have said something like this. This is all a terrible mistake. Why didn't God provide better conveniences for me? More comfortable surroundings for me? Why was I not in my own house? Why in this distant place? Why among animals is God against me? See, we can't judge the wisdom of God by outward matters and circumstances. Maybe some of you right now, maybe you are in the will of God, and yet life is very difficult for you at the present time. You're not to conclude, therefore, that he's angry with you. The whole book of Job tells us that that's the wrong kind of conclusion. You may very well be the apple of his eye. And all you're going through may just be his wise plan for you to mature you and to bring you closer to Christ. That's exactly what Mary experienced here. So this birth is unique in its quietness, in its difficulty, and then also in its recipients who receive the birth announcement in the fields of Ephrata. It's amazing, isn't it, that it was the shepherds who received the word. The shepherds? Are you kidding me? That lowly people? So low, so lowly esteemed in society that the Talmud said they're so inconsequential that they're not even allowed to give testimony in court? Why was the news not sent to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, the religious experts of the day, the chief priests, the men who knew their Bibles so well? Surely God would send his angel to these people and give them the visions and the dreams and the wonderful revelations. But no, this is a unique birth. Shepherds, these shepherds, it appears, were the God-fearing ones, like, like Simeon. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. In a sense, they were the true Israel of God. Scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priest turned out to be Christ's chief adversaries. What a lesson here. God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but upon the heart. You may be despised by men, but not by God. You may well never have been an office bearer in the church or a missionary or never had anything more than perhaps a a low-paying, simple job. But if you have the love of Christ in your heart, if you wait upon Him, if you have a relationship, a vital relationship with Him, God sees that. God knows that. God blesses that. If you have the humble spirit work love that these shepherds had in their hearts for God, you may never be highly esteemed in this world, but you'll be highly esteemed in the world to come. 
Well, it's to these shepherds at this unique birth that the angel spoke these amazing words of our text this morning. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, literally in the Greek, born this day in the city of David, Savior, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, which is Christ the Lord. This is astonishing. This message adds to the uniqueness of Christ's birth, doesn't it? In, in additional ways, let me just give you a couple of them. Born, born. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, born? Born in a unique way? Absolutely. He had a human mother, but no human father. Why was he born from a virgin? Well, if he had been born from two parents, as we are born, the sin of Adam would have been imputed to him. As it is imputed to us, it's passed down to us through the pollution of our parents as well. But Jesus had to be born in a unique way, where the male and the female seed would not come together and pass on. Original sin. He had to be born without sin. He had to be holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. So that he could save sinners. If he had been stained with original sin, he'd have to pay for his own sin. He couldn't pay for us. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. This is absolutely critical in our theology, in our understanding of the gospel. He had no actual sin. For 33 years, he loved God above all, loved his neighbors himself. But he also had no original sin. Born of the Virgin Mary. The Church of All Ages has realized how important that is. That's why it made it into the list of 12 fundamental articles of the Christian faith. This is a miraculous birth. So unique. So wise. Whoever would have thought of such a thing. God found a way of bringing his son into this world as a baby boy without any responsibility for any sin and ever, ever, no sin. Undefiled. So as to his human nature, he had no father. As to his divine nature, he had no mother. No wonder, no wonder the angel cries out, Fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy. This is God's way of salvation. Savior, Christ the Lord, the long-awaited one. He's born. He's born, it's real. What the God-fearing waited for for thousands of years has happened. In a quiet little manger, in a quiet little town, under a teenage girl who had a baby. This is amazing. Why, why is everything so poor, so 
low, so humble. Well, obviously, that's because God wants to tell us this very message, that this is something that is available to all people, as we heard yesterday, to the greatest of sinners. There's no one excluded from this invitation to come to this lowly Savior in this lowly manger by faith and by repentance, worked in their soul by the Holy Spirit. He will turn none away who so come. This is unique birth. Born. The Messiah, born. The Eternal One, born. But secondly, unto you is born. You see, he existed before his birth, and we don't, of course, or except in our mother's womb, but he existed from eternity past. He's an eternal divine person, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The eternal second person of the Godhead is born into human flesh. How different from us. We are of yesterday. Ought not this make us marvel at the arrogance of people? I was thinking the other day about evolutionists. They study for some years. They go briefly to some college or university. They read some books. They peer into some microscopes. They look at some bones and rocks. And then they have the arrogance to tell us how old the earth is, millions and billions of years old, and their numbers vary wildly. And they think they can tell us how the world came about when they weren't there. Only God was there. In reality, they know nothing compared to the wisdom of Christ. That Christ has deposited his wisdom in his word. His word. He is the word of God. The living word. And he gives us the written word by his spirit. How we are to listen to him. How we are to listen to him. Who is born. For sinners, just like you and me, the Bible ought to be our university, so to speak. Our light, our guide, the word of Christ to us. The eternal person revealed in it with everlasting wisdom. This is our wisdom. All the wisdom of this world, with all of its computers, is less than a grain of sand compared to the wisdom of the Son of Man, born as a lowly baby in Bethlehem. This is a unique birth. And lastly, it's unique because it's a birth by choice. Did you choose to be born? No. But he was born of his own free will. He said, Lo, my father, I come to do thy will. Come to do thy will. We're born through the will of God and in a sense of our parents. But Christ came freely to be the Savior of his people. 
He came because he had a people in mind for whom he desired to live and to die, to bring them to glory. He's a willing Savior. You don't have to twist his arm to save you. Nor the Father's heart to save you, who gave his Son. Nor the Spirit to work salvation in you, as the Spirit is just as willing as the Father is to give His Son, as the Son is to give Himself, so the Spirit is willing to give Himself to the task of taking the things of Jesus and revealing them to you and working faith and repentance in you. This is a triune, free, united choice to save sinners. The triune God decided not to save the fallen angels. As we heard also yesterday, election is our hope. Election is a gift of God. Election is never an obstacle. Without election, no one would be saved. This is the triune God's election to elect His own Son to come and save sinners. His birth is by choice. I will be born as, as, as a little baby, Lord. Because I want to do thy will, my Father, and save all those whom thou hast given me from eternity past. What a miracle this is. What a wonder this is. He comes in time, though he's the creator of the ends of the earth. The Almighty One becomes a little child. The Prince of Glory becomes a babe in a manger. The Infinite One Bone of our bone becomes flesh of our flesh. Son of God becomes a son of man. The creator is born of the creature. He whose dwelling is in the heavens is let down into the smoke of sin and hellishness on earth. He who thunders in the heavens cries in a lowly manger. The immortal Son is clothed with rags of mortality. The eternal is made a child of time. He who is made man after his image, himself is made after man's image. The invisible God is made visible in Bethlehem. His birth spells God taking our flesh and dwelling in it with divine fullness and opening through that flesh His gospel treasures of sovereign grace by being Savior and Redeemer and kinsman and elder brother and shepherd, paving the way for our flesh, if we're believers, one day to become more glorious than that of angels. This is what we commemorate today. This unique, unique birth. Now, not that the shepherds could understand all this, or others, or not the wise men who came from the east. We don't know exactly how much they understood. We have so much more revealed to us than they did. And Jesus hid his deity. He veiled his deity most of the time. When he was on earth, he came as God in disguise, as it were, as though he were a beggar born in a stable, as if he were not the eternal resplendent Son of God, who's the very image of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the question for us this morning is, 
How do we respond to this unique birth, this unique Savior who was born to be Savior, who was conceived supernaturally and born humbly and lived sympathetically and obeyed vicariously and died sacrificially It was raised victoriously and ascended triumphantly and intercedes continually and seals His love to His people sacramentally and will return gloriously and will reign eternally. How do you respond to Him? The one Savior you need for the one soul you have. Is it good news to you Do you receive it with great joy? Do you bow before this King of Kings, born in Bethlehem? Do you surrender to Him as Son of God and Son of Man? Well, either He is your Lord and your God, or you're turning away from Him. There's not three choices. What do you think of Jesus Christ? That's the question. That's the question Jesus asked people. What do you think? Who do you think I am? That's the key question. Do you think he's really Jesus the Christ? And yet you don't bow before him? How do you dare not to bow if he's the Christ, if he's the anointed one, if he's the judge coming for you to judge you? See, either you love him or you're rejecting him. Either you become his disciple or you're turning away from him. He's come. He's come to you this day, today, also in the city of David. Savior, Christ, which means the anointed, the Lord, the Messiah. Are you trusting in him? Are you bowing before him? Are you still pushing him away? Are you still refusing to surrender yourself to him? Still hugging your sins? Still being filled with this world? Still content to go on with Adam's guilt of original sin and, and, and the millions and millions of actual sins you've committed? Still willing to hang on to all those sins? And go on your way to suffer and to die forever lost. When he says, come to me just as you are. And I'm willing to save the greatest of sinners. I'll give you my spirit to work repentance and faith in you. Just don't stay away. I love the expression my dad often said to me as a boy. Don't you dare ever to leave God alone. Don't you dare ever to leave God alone. Don't turn your back on the one opportunity you have to know life and to know it abundantly. You need to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Nothing of your works, nothing of your prayers, nothing of your tears, nothing that anything that you could ever do can merit one ounce of salvation. Salvation is by free, sovereign grace through a freely offered Christ 
who came so uniquely to be Christ the Lord. Is he your only hope? Embrace that hope. Believe that hope. Surrender to that hope. Well, what are the wonderful reasons why Jesus was born this way? I want to just give you three reasons. This is my second point. Three reasons. He came, of course, with respect to himself. He came to fulfill the Father's decrees. He came for his own glory and the triune of God's glory. But the text focuses more on reasons for us. Why did he come for us? Well, number one, he came to speak. He came to speak to us, to proclaim the word of God to us. That's implied by the angel when the angel says, I bring you good tidings of great joy. I, I bring you, I announce it, I announce it with words. I proclaim it from heaven. The angel is proclaiming that the proclaimer is here. The long-awaited proclaimer of the gospel is here. The long-awaited gospel itself is here in him. And he will proclaim his own name as the Messiah. His work is to preach. As the Puritans used to say, God had only one son and he made him a preacher. God wanted to speak to the world. God wanted to say something to you and me. He didn't come to entertain the world. He didn't come to be a sensation worker. He came to bring a message. That's why John calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Words bring thoughts. Words convey a message. Jesus Himself is the sermon. He's the living sermon from God to the world. Basically, that sermon has two points. God hates sin. Point one, God saves sinners. Point two, He will never turn away a penitent sinner who comes by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of the Spirit. And almost everything Jesus says can be summarized under one of these two headings. The world is lost. And if you're unsaved, you're part of that world. The world is under the power of death and the devil. But those who believe in me, Jesus says, will be delivered from the wrath to come. It's the grand old message. In all its simplicity, the grand old gospel that Christ alone can save. He that believeth on the Son, John 3.36, has everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. This is what Jesus came to say. In dozens of ways, he came to speak to us. Invitingly, admonishingly, he speaks. He speaks into every one of our lives. Second, he came to show. 
He came to speak. He came to show. To show who he is. To reveal who and what God is. Through him. He who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. It's critical, you see, if we are to be saved, that we understand who God is and who Christ is and who the Holy Spirit is. It's why Christ came to reveal God, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward man. The Savior is born to tell us who He is, to tell us what God is like. Now, what do we see? Well, we see one who is matchless in his purity and yet cares for people. Jesus is perfect, and yet he cares for the imperfect. Did anyone ever care for people like Jesus did? He never refused anyone who came for help, genuinely, sincerely. He cared for all who came. He'll do the same for you, my friend. He's not a turner away like you, who've always, up to this point in your life, been a turner away from Him. He turns His face to you. The message is a message of good tidings, of great joy, which shall be to all people. And to you was born this day in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. And in Christ, He turns His face to us. And He invites us to come just as we are to him. He doesn't invite us to go straighten ourselves out and come clean and polished in our best suit to him. He says, come to me just as you are. Look and do me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is none else. My friend, you need Christ. You need salvation. And he's the only one who can give it by his spirit. He's the only one who is it. He is it himself. You need his help. You need his salvation. You need his life. You need to die to yourself to live out of his life. And you'll find life in his death. Life is so short. I was just talking with someone before church about that. You get old before you know it. Our life is like like an arrow shot from a bow. That arrow can only stay a moment or two above ground and it falls to the ground. Our life is like that. Soon we'll fall under the power of death. We'll be buried. We'll be raised again. We'll all be brought to another world, an eternal world. And all that matters then is, have you, have I, in this brief life, come to know Jesus Christ? Have we been saved? Have we had our sin problem dealt with by His precious atoning blood? Have we received His forgiveness with with, with humility and with wonder and with amazement? And has it produced in us the fruits of godliness and holiness, of which he says, without holiness no man shall see the Lord? Have we been born again? 
He comes to speak. He comes to show. And thirdly, he comes to save. Savior. His very name means one who deals with sin. His great mission in being born was to deal with sin. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's a saving Savior. He can remove unremovable guilt. He can pardon unpardonable debt. He can cleanse an uncleansable heart. And he's an anointed Savior. Christ means anointed. Anointed to be your prophet to teach you. To be your priest to sacrifice for you and to intercede for you. To be your king to govern and guide you. He's your prophet to teach unteachable people. Your, your priest to pray for prayerless people. Your, your king to govern ungovernable people. And he's an almighty savior. He's Christ the Lord. The almighty. The Adonai. He can conquer the hardest heart because he's almighty. His Holy Spirit can break the unbreakable heart can prepare the unpreparable heart, can love the loveless heart, can restore the unrestorable heart. He's almighty in all three of his persons to do the whole of salvation for you, to solve the sin problem, which is your biggest problem. And we have a lot of problems in life, don't we? We all do. There's health problems. They can be so messy, so disheartening, so discouraging. You feel your body's not as strong as it once was, or you have problems with your heart, or with your eyes, or with your ears. Everything starts to degenerate. Or you can have other problems in life. Problems in your family. Problems with your work. Seems like there's always a problem. Isn't that true? Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, the Bible says. But our real problem is more than all of that combined. Our real problem is not a health problem. Our real problem is not a family problem. Our real problem is a sin problem. The Puritans called it the plague of plagues, the evil of evils, and the sickness of sicknesses. But Christ says, I came to deal with all of that. That's why I've come. I didn't come just to be a cute baby in a manger. I came to be a savior of sinners. I came to bring you the gospel message, the good news, the glad tidings. I came not simply to deal with your body, Earthly physicians have a valuable vocation. I'm not minimizing the needs of our body. Our body and our soul in some ways are intertwined, aren't they? It's hard to be close to God spiritually when your body's in great pain. But you see, ultimately, Christ deals with the soul. The body, yes, it is secondary. The mind, even the mind is secondary, but... He, he comes 
Yes, he deals with body. Yes, he deals with the mind. Yes, he's a counselor. But the most vital work he does, the greatest work he does, is to save our soul, to deal with our sin, to put it away, to cast it behind his back into the sea of forgetfulness. We need to have our sins dealt with. He comes not just to to speak and to show, but he comes to save, to save, to make salvation possible. More than that, to make salvation certain. Yes, more than that, to make salvation personal, to apply it to you by the Holy Spirit. Christ can put every primary problem of your life right. And He can do it now when He deals with sin. He sent His Son to be the Savior of sinners. And, you know, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a Google, Google, uh, not sure exactly what you call it, but a Google map where you, you zone in. You know what it's like. You can zone into Grand Rapids, and then you can zone into Northeast Grand Rapids, then you can zone into your particular house. And you can, you can look at your own house. It's, it's personal. That's what this text is all about. God just doesn't come to, to Mars or Jupiter or some planet or star in the Milky Way galaxy. But He comes to this lowly earth, this lowly Bethlehem, as it were, which is but a speck of dust on His balance. And who does He come for? He doesn't come for devils who have sinned. He doesn't come for angels who have never sinned. But He comes for poor, dying men and women and boys and girls and teenagers like you and me. And He zones in on us. He doesn't just come for Jews, but also for Gentiles. He doesn't just come to the United States, but He zones in on Michigan, and then on Grand Rapids, and then to the HRC Church, and then into our very sanctuary, and then into our very pews, into your very family. And He comes to you. Unto you is born this day. In the city of David. Savior. Christ the Lord. And he's serious about this. This isn't a feigned offer of grace. This is a well-meant offer of grace for poor, dying sinners, for you boys and girls, for you teenagers, for you parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. He's coming to the world to save sinners. Oh, be like Bartimaeus. Jesus was passing him by for the very last time in his life. And Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Son of God, have mercy. Christ the Lord, Savior of sinners, cry it out. Have mercy on me. Well, what is the joyful effect what is the joyful effect of, of Christ's birth? Let me conclude with that this morning. My third point, more briefly. The world doesn't know what happiness is. The world happiness is having parties on Christmas Day. Eating like gluttons. 
pursuing the lust of the flesh and the eye. The world pursues happiness in the world. The world is essentially Epicurean. It follows the old philosophy, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's the philosophy of despair. It's a philosophy of temporary increments of joy that don't go deep into the soul. Surface joys. But the joyful effect of this gospel is altogether different. It's altogether different. You see, you young people, for example, you could have everything that most young people want. You could be really good looking. You could be popular at school. You could, you, you could have uh, great possessions. You could be a good personality guy or girl. You could relate well to people. Uh, people naturally like you. You, you could have a, a wonderful boyfriend or girlfriend. At least you think he or she's wonderful. You could, you could have everything you could possibly desire, but if you don't have Christ and his forgiveness, and you don't know the joy that the angels are talking about here, the joy of his salvation, the joy of Jesus Christ, who is salvation, you have nothing. You really have nothing but a little temporary small blips of external happiness. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, since we're all dying people, and since life is just like a flower that blooms and fades, and like a cloud that comes and disappears, like an arrow that falls to the ground. It's over before you know it. Since that's all true, Spurgeon said, no matter what we have in this life, if we don't have Christ, we're carrying with us on our back a coffin. And we will soon have grave dust in our mouth. You have got to be born again. Do you understand? You can't keep going this way. You need this joy, this incredible joy. And believe me, I've met so many Christians all over the world for the last 45 years. I have never met a true Christian who was sorry they became a Christian. To be a true Christian brings you into a joy that makes all the joys of this world look like little pebbles at your feet. You need to be ready to meet God. Unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, Christ the Lord. So fear not. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Not just the Jews. Gentiles, like you and me. In fact, all the Old Testament promises were designed, ultimately, not just for Israel. The Abrahamic promise 
has embedded in it, as you can see also in so many of the Psalms, all the nations of the earth, this comes to you, comes to you today, once more, one more time. Will it be the last time? Will it? Will someone die in our audience this morning before next Lord's Day? Will this be the last opportunity you have to bend the knee under the Word of God to the Gospel? It was Bartimaeus' last opportunity. And he cried out. You're going to go home in a few minutes. Probably your family's coming over, most of you. Big meal's going to be prepared. Can I ask you to do yourself a favor? And when you get home, go into your bedroom and shut the door. And cry out to God if you're not yet saved. So I can't go on, Lord. I need this Savior. Bend the knee. Confess your guilt. Surrender to Him. Don't leave the Lord alone. Unto you. Unto you. It's personal. He comes. He comes. This morning. He came yesterday. Twice. But though he's long-suffering, he won't keep coming all the time. He'll soon, he'll soon call for you. And where the tree falls, when you die, where your soul falls, to the north or to the south, to the north away from God, it means to the south toward Jesus Christ, there it shall lie. Pray then, O oh Lord, teach me to pray. O oh Lord, have mercy on me. O oh Lord, help me to believe in thy Son truly. Help me to surrender my sins at his feet. Help me to trust him. Help me to surrender to the babe. You shall find the babe, the angel said to the shepherds. You shall find the babe. When you, by grace, by the Spirit's work, repent and believe in Him. You shall find the babe. The humble, sin-free Jesus will humble you and make you a sin-conscious people and will bring you to Himself. And He will not only tabernacle with you, but He will tabernacle in you. That's my wish for you. But you will know Christ without has become Christ within by His Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, fill us with the wonder and the mystery of Bethlehem. Shine upon our hearts. May we see in the face of the Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the glory of thyself, shining, speaking, showing, saving.
May we see in the person of Christ that mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. Oh, give us grace to bow, to surrender, to believe, to embrace, to trust, to receive, to have a worshipful spirit toward thy Son, by thy Holy Spirit, grace to follow him until the time finally becomes eternity. And we shall see with our own eyes the Lamb who dwells in the midst of the throne of God and worship him and sing his praises forever and ever. Amen.